This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. It happens to all of us. Right before an important presentation, the printer runs out of ink. Brother Inkvestment tank printers help put a stop to this and can literally change the way you ink. With your choice of one or two years of ink included in box, Inkvestment Tank helps eliminate the expense and hassle of frequently buying and replacing ink cartridges. Learn more at changethewayyouink.com. Faculty and students at Rochester Institute of Technology recently built a robot fish. Why? Because it could lead to a new wave of prosthetics. Now we're all hooked. At RIT, the creative team of engineers is on to something life-changing. Learn more about the project at rit.edu kick. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. With all the buzz around the Mueller report and what may or may not be in there, I wanted to invite my own legal expert on the show today. He's a man who's dealt with Robert Mueller personally during Mueller's years in the Justice Department. He's both been on the receiving end of President Trump's praise and his scorn, and he's one of the few people who may know what it's like to be in Mueller's shoes, having prosecuted some of the most high-profile cases in recent memory. Preet Bharara served as U.S. Attorney for the famed Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. Bharara was widely known as one of the most aggressive prosecutors in the country, going after public corruption, terrorism, drug lords, financial industry crimes, organized crime, and more. During his time at SDNY, he prosecuted terrorists like Times Square bomber Faisal Shahzad, Somali pirate Abduwali Muz, Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, and the heads of four of the five New York crime families. Equally aggressive in pursuing financial crimes, he investigated the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, prosecuted a hundred Wall Street executives for insider trading, and reached historic settlements and fines with the four largest banks in the United States. Though he once served as chief legal counsel to Senator Chuck Schumer, Barrara didn't play political favorites. He investigated everyone from Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio to former New York Senate Majority Leader Dean Skelos and the former Speaker of the New York State Assembly Sheldon Silver. But if Preet Bharara was blind to politics, politics wasn't blind to him. Upon getting elected president, Donald Trump initially asked him to stay on as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, but then turned around and fired Bharara just three months later when Barrara refused former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' request that he and 45 other U.S. attorneys appointed under President Obama resign from their offices. Now, at a time when the rule of law appears to be under attack and many Americans are experiencing a crisis of faith in the justice system, Preet Barrara comes to its defense, but also says we need to acknowledge and allow for flaws in the system and in human nature in a new book called Doing Justice a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law. Today, Preet joins me on the podcast to weigh in on the Mueller report, whether Attorney General Bill Barr's interpretation of that report can be trusted, why Mueller didn't make any recommendations one way or another, and whether he intended to punt those decisions to Bill Barr or to Congress. We talk about Preet's eight years as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, what movies and TV get wrong about criminal investigations, and why it's never as simple as just connecting the dots or following the money. 
He says if you want to get a confession out of a bad guy, try feeding him well instead of playing hardball. He gets into the devil's bargain of cutting deals with cooperating witnesses and why sometimes the cases you don't prosecute are just as important as the ones you do. Coming up with Preet Bharara in just a moment. Preet Bharara served as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. Bharara oversaw the investigation and litigation of all criminal and civil cases and supervised an office of more than 200 assistant U.S. attorneys who handled cases involving terrorism, narcotics and arms trafficking, financial and health care fraud, cybercrime, public corruption, gang violence, organized crime, and civil rights violations. In 2017, Barrara joined the NYU School of Law faculty as a distinguished scholar-in-residence. He is the executive vice president of Some Spider Studios and the host of Cafe's Stay Tuned with Preet, a podcast focused on issues of justice and fairness. Now Preet talks about justice and fairness in a new book titled Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. Preet Barrara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I want to spend most of the interview on this great new book of yours, but I obviously have to get this out of the way and ask about the Mueller investigation from the outside. Did something happen? Yeah, I know. You're probably (laughs) so sick of these questions, aren't you? My big question is, you know, I was kind of surprised and probably I'm not alone in this that Mueller, at least according to the bar summary, did not reach any conclusions, nor did he make any recommendations. Why do you think that he decided to punt? And do you think that he intended to punt to Bill Barr or to Congress? So it's a great question. And it's, I think, the most important question of the last, you know, seven to 10 days. And we won't know until we see the report. And it would be interesting to look at the language of how Bob Mueller says that he is not going to reach a decision on the issue of obstruction. I think most importantly, you know, the, the Barr uh, language in his summary letter says that Bob Mueller decided not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. I don't think that that's probably the way that Mueller put it, but given all the bits of evidence and given what I know about Bob Mueller, and given that he did not specifically say he was leaving it to the attorney general, the attorney general seized the opportunity, my guess is that he was punting to Congress. And and the analogy that I keep using, I've been saying, you know, Bob Mueller punted to Congress, and Bill Barr sort of ran onto the field from the stands, <laughs> grabbed the ball, yeah. and ran it in for a touchdown for Trump. And people keep saying, well, that's not how a punt works. And I said, that makes it a better analogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because all the rules you know, seem to have been flouted here. So I, so I think he was sending it to Congress. And I think he thought, I, I don't know again, right? I want to just preface everything with a million with a million caveats that maybe he thought the question is so close, the issue is so fraught, the stakes are so high, and in that circumstance, maybe it shouldn't be a guy like me, Bob Mueller, appointed by the Deputy Attorney General to decide this really weighty question, given that we have this constitutional process you know, laid out in the founding document of our country. And I'll lay it out in the way that some people think Ron Jaworski did uh, during Watergate. That's my best guess at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Barr seems to have chosen his words very carefully. Uh, you're a guy who's fluent in legalese. What do you <laughs> think he's saying or not saying there? I think he's trying to put the issue to rest. I think he's trying to get for the, you know, for the president and the White House. He's trying to get past this issue 
And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a cleverly written letter. I, I don't think it's the case that he is, you know, grossly misrepresenting what the Mueller report says. I think he would get in a lot of trouble if that was so. I think he's too smart for that. Um, by way of example, he seems to have had no choice but to put in the one partial sentence that's the most damaging to the president, and that is that Bob Mueller, with respect to obstruction at least, said, this does not exonerate the president. That's, you know, in a different context, with different spin, and with a president who uses microphone to less effect, that's an unbelievably huge, yeah, damning thing. It would be. That there seems to be, by definition, given that it's a close question, that means that there is some substantial evidence, maybe not that, that gets you over the threshold, but there is some substantial evidence, according to Bob Mueller, it seems, that the President of the United States obstructed justice. That's a big deal. Well, let me ask you more generally. You know, the past two years of this Mueller investigation and everything that comes with it, the firing of Comey and Sessions, the Peter Strokes text, the sum total of the whole experience, does it reinforce your faith in the system or does it undermine it a little bit? I think there are a lot of things that have happened over the last couple of years that, that reinforce both feelings. I think, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book is that there's a lot of confusion. You know, there are people who talk about alternative facts who are close to the president. There are people who talk about truth not being truth. Who are close to the president. So on the one hand, I think you have uh, you know really good, strong-minded prosecutors and judges and members of the media also, that's another institution under attack, who keep their head down, who do their job the way they're supposed to be doing it, who carry on even in the face of, uh, I think, inappropriate attacks by the president and his supporters. But then on the other hand, you know, you have a lot of maneuvering, you have a lot of politics, you have a lot of people undermining the truth. And, and, and look, and I think the one thing that's been very dispiriting in the last few days has been this sort of you know turnabout on the part of the president's supporters who seem to think that the fact that an investigation is not conclusive on the question of criminality, although clearly they found some evidence with respect to obstruction, means that anyone who raised any question about the president, given all the smoke that he purposely you know put out, uh, is somehow treasonous. Or somehow McCarthyism. Yeah, it's not how it the works. Retribution is frightening. Yeah, it, it, this is not a case where someone's you know was is satisfied will you know leave well enough alone, uh, who believes he's been persecuted. Uh, yeah, although although is, all the evidence is by quits the, while he's yeah. ahead, doesn't he? <laughs> no, well that's not how this president operates. Yeah, and you know they're attacking the investigation, which is slightly odd to me, given that it seems at least from the perspective of the president. That it was done in a uh, you know professional mm-hmm. way with integrity. I'm um, putting the stroke stuff aside, and he was eliminated from the from the matter many right. many many months ago. So all the findings here, I don't think uh, you know arise from from anything that, that Peter Strzok had to offer necessarily. And rather than be satisfied that at the end of the day, that these this person who he accused of having a conflict, the team that he accused of being full of three, thirteen angry Democrats, accused of uh, being on a witch hunt is essentially on the critical matter, exonerating him from criminal liability on conspiracy with respect to the election, he's then turning around and saying, well, all these people are treasonous and people who had cause to say, you know, it's a weird thing to stand up and, and ask the Russians to, to, to provide information and ask folks to hack Hillary Clinton's emails and take the meeting uh, where there's going to be dirt offered on Hillary Clinton and not go yeah. to the FBI. These are not things to be proud of, as Adam Schiff, I think, has very eloquently said. Yeah, but I mean, realistically, was there ever going to be a smoking gun in this kind of situation? From your experience, if you're investigating a case similar to this, what constitutes a smoking gun well, in that sort you, of thing? Sometimes you have um, you know, something that's recorded because someone decides to record mm-hmm. it. Sometimes you have a cooperating witness who goes behind the scenes and wears a body wire. Sometimes you have uh, when people are 
you know, especially dumb, which is not necessarily not the case here with respect to some people. <laughs> there's an email mm-hmm. uh, that that's highly incriminating and that you know people can tout as a smoking gun. But yeah, but generally speaking, when you're talking about intent and certain kinds of conspiracy and certain kinds of obstruction, you have to get at what's in the person's mind. And usually people don't, you know, write in their journal, I committed a crime today, yeah. tomorrow I intend to expand on that crime. <laughs> and by the way, if anybody found out about it, they would be able to prove racketeering. Like that, that doesn't, doesn't work that way usually. Yeah. And I have to ask you a little bit about your time at SDNY when Trump, uh, I guess, asked you to stay on and then turned around and fired you three months later. When you agreed to stay under this president, did you get any kind of an uneasy feeling in your gut of, oh boy, this job just got a lot more difficult or some sense that your own ethics might be challenged in the process? Not at that first meeting when he was president-elect. That was, I think, two and a half weeks after the election, three weeks after the election on November 30th of 2016. And, you know, I understood my office and position to be independent, that you don't answer directly to the president, although the president appoints you. That's in fact President Obama. Yes, in fact, (laughs) President Obama, once when we met, when he met with all the United States attorneys for for a photograph, in the White House, you know, four or five years ago, said specifically to all of us, and it, it never left my mind. You know, I appointed all of you, he said, but you don't, you don't work for me. You don't report to me. You don't answer to me. You're supposed to do the right thing for the public uh, and by your oath in support of the Constitution. And that's how I felt about the job, whether Obama's a president or Trump is a president mm-hmm. or anyone else. But, you know, some people made the story. Then the, the president-elect started calling me, and he called me a couple of times before the inauguration. He called me one time after, and then I saw, you know, other bits of information about how the president, you know, sort of operated uh, and, and how he blurred the lines between politics and law enforcement. And I got an uneasy feeling. And because mm-hmm. of that uneasy feeling, by the way, when he called me uh, from the White House on March 9th of 2017, maybe not everyone knows this, I decided it would be inappropriate to return the call without knowing what it was about. Because how would you explain that call later, especially after he had made yeah. a big deal of the tarmac incident with Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton right. while they were swirling you know, calls for my office, Southern District, with a lot of jurisdiction over a lot of things that are important to him to be investigating the president. In the midst of all of that, without having the attorney general or some normal, uh, you know, looped in process, I said, I, I don't think it's appropriate to speak to the president until I know more. Uh, and 22 hours later, I was asked to resign. And a day hmm. later, I was fired. Wow. Now, if people were expecting you to air your grievances in your new book, they're going to be disappointed. Uh, surprisingly, you make little to no reference to Trump in doing justice. Uh, why did you decide not to explicitly call out the president in this book? Yeah, because um, there's Twitter for that. <laughs> there's, <laughs> okay. There's my podcast. Stay tuned for that. And look, right. and also, look, the issues that the country is facing, they're larger than Donald Trump. The subversion of truth, the attacks on our institutions, that's not done by just one person. That's, you know, a a function of, I think, a direction that the country has been going in that Donald Trump exploits and uses to his purposes Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and to disadvantage others. And I think when you begin to, to have sort of serious and thoughtful and important discussions about truth and evidence and, uh, and the rule of law and equal access to justice and equal justice before the bar of the law, and you throw in Donald Trump's name, people immediately retreat to their corners, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they get their backup, or they immediately, you know, cheer you on without even hearing your argument. And sometimes I think it's better to go back to first principles. And so the book is about lots and lots of stories of cases that I oversaw, uh, whether they're cautionary tales, whether sort of lessons for people. Not just I want to make it very clear. My father wants me to tell everyone very clear: this is not a book for lawyers. You know, I think lawyers will enjoy it. 
uh, yeah. and should read it. But it's a book for anybody who plays a sport, who has to make a decision about discipline, who cares about truth, who needs to understand how to, you know, reason about things that are important in their lives or in their jobs or in their careers or in their families. And then you see how justice sometimes is done properly, how sometimes mm-hmm. it's thwarted, and you learn from that. And I think that's a, a, you know, a bigger lesson and a more important place to be sort of talking in the public forum than always sort of bashing Trump. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Preet Bharara when we come back in just a minute. For me, one of the most interesting parts of the book was getting into the tradecraft of a criminal investigation. Most Americans have never been under criminal investigation or even been part of that process. So naturally, a lot of us get our ideas of how it works from police procedurals and legal procedurals and movies. Two of the most common phrases I hear on those shows are connect the dots and follow the money. <laughs> you hate those two terms. Why? I don't hate those terms, but you know, I, I think part of the reason people who find the book interesting is everyone's been an armchair lawyer, an investigator, an FBI agent over the last you know couple of years while the Mueller investigation was proceeding. And they hear about Michael Cohen and they hear about Paul Manafort and they want to know what flipping means and they want to know how you right. interrogate. And everyone has their views because they watch a lot of television. Everyone, by the way, is also further to the particular point of your question, are so impatient. So, well, you know, follow the money, connect the dots. And, you know, I kind of make fun of those phrases a little bit because they're so facile. You know, to say connect the dots, I know connect the dots, by the way, if you go back to what, what is connect the dots, it's a way we teach young children with no artistic ability <laughs> to draw a jagged <laughs> picture of like a cow or a barn or a face. Yeah. And anybody, so long as you can, you know, you can count, you can drag your pen from the dot numbered one to the dot number two to the dot number three until you have a picture. To say that that's how a complex criminal investigation that involves, you know, financial tra- transactions and mental states of people and the movement, it, it's just not that easy. Mm-hmm. It's not knowable in advance the order in which you have to do an investigation and you know check various boxes. It is incredibly more complicated than that. And also follow the money. You know, money doesn't like to be followed. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when yeah. when bad you know uh, nefarious payments are made, bribes. Uh, yeah, follow the money is is a nice phrase and it makes sense and and it should be done. The only point I was making about these phrases is it it minimizes I think in some ways the extreme difficulty and challenge and complexity mm-hmm. of doing some of these investigations. And by the way, along you know, the last couple of, t- couple of years, lots of people, depending on their point of view, but even people who you know, don't like the president and people who think it was a witch hunt all thought, well, what's taking so long? So after 22 months, by the way, if you compare the Mueller investigation to historic uh, you know, precedents, whether are special counsels or independent counsels, pretty quick and a lot of charges. I mean... In some ways, he's not totally done because some of these things, including uh, the remains of what happens to uh, to Rick Gates, have been passed along to other U.S. attorneys' offices. But he made fairly quick work of it. And is follow the money or the myth of follow the money one of the biggest problems in trying to prosecute financial crimes? Because I know that you took a lot of heat for not going after the banks in the wake of the financial crisis. People accused you of being afraid or being politically motivated. Why didn't you yeah, go over no, that? There's no fear. There's no political motivation. You know, we, as I say in the book, and I understand people's frustration about the financial crisis, Mm -hmm. and dozens of uh, prosecutors' offices, DAs' offices, um, regulatory offices all looked really hard and went after, just, you know, couldn't put together a criminal case, which is frustrating to everyone, including the people who tried to do that. But the idea that there was any fear uh, 
is is quite patently ludicrous. I mean, we we prosecuted billionaires, we prosecuted our own law enforcement partners, we prosecuted Al Qaeda, we prosecuted Al Shabaab, we prosecuted Crips and Bloods, we prosecuted the mafia, we prosecuted people who kill witnesses, we prosecuted people who would threaten the lives and safety of the prosecutors and agents who went after them. So the idea that anyone was afraid of some men in suits, I find patently absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're not afraid to make political enemies for sure. You've been banned from Russia for prosecuting a particularly <laughs> influential Russian. I was going to go to Minsk for uh, vacation. Now I can't. Yeah, can't you that. got a rebuke from uh, Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey, and apparently he pressured Vice President Biden to fire you, and even your country of birth, India. <laughs> you not talk happy. about how the show hosts of TV shows there, uh, they say that you're the most hated man in India, and an Indian uncle. Tom, uh, yeah. what did you do to piss off India? And my job has been hard on your relatives. <laughs> I, I did my job. Look, look, look at uh, Bob Mueller. You know, basically the most decorated prosecutor, yeah. investigator, I think, in recent history of our country. And even he could be swift boated in a manner of speaking by people who don't like to be investigated. Mm -hmm. And you know, any prosecutor who does his or her job and is aggressive, as I think we were, is going to get attacked and be accused of. You know, all sorts of things because people people don't like to be investigated. People sure. don't like to go to prison. <laughs> people don't like to serve time. Yeah. You know, there's a gentleman now, uh, if I can do the anti-plug of a book, Roger Gupta has written a book. He's an insider trading defendant uh, who we prosecuted, who does everything in the world but accept responsibility for what he did and for which he got a light sentence. You know, blaming the prosecutor, blaming the system, blaming other people. Uh, it's reminiscent of, you know, what Donald Trump has been doing a little bit. It's just, it's part of the job of being a prosecutor and you accept it and you keep your head down and you do your job and you speak through your actions and the court proceedings and people like to take shots at folks because they don't they don't like being held accountable this is the way it is and speaking of your own ethnic heritage you extol the virtues of ethnic food and getting a crook to talk is it true that the stomach is still the way to a man's heart even if you're a terrorist or a mobster it can be you know part of the point in the book that people will be surprised by is how uh Law enforcement, like anything else, whether it's nursing or doctoring or uh, counseling or teaching, it's about understanding how human beings operate, mm -hmm. what makes them tick, what makes them be able to be persuaded, uh, how you change their minds, how you bring them along. And so I tell a number of stories, uh, you know, maybe the food stories being among the most interesting. I've had something, you know, as simple as bringing someone the, the, the ethnic food that they cherish while they're in lockup and you're trying to persuade them to come over to the side of the government. Uh, as one agent once put, put it to me, if you bring someone the food that they crave and that they remember from their, from the old country, that's a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to build a relationship with these folks. And I think you know that happens time and time again. I tell mm -hmm. another story of, of a detective who I like very much, Kenny Robbins, in this sort of process of trying to get someone to flip, he would sort of invert the idea of what manhood was for some of these tough you know, drug trafficker types. And he would go into the room, and if available, he would put a picture of the person's daughter or wife or whole family, and then he would leave the room and come back. See, I understand you want to be a man, and you could decide to be a man and keep your mouth shut and not talk about, you know, the other guys. Or you could be a man, and he points to the pictures, you could be a man, and you could be there for your daughter's graduation. You could be there for your son's wedding. You could be there for your father's huh. retirement. And, you know, that's not in a book anywhere. You don't often see that in the, in the movies. Yeah. Everyone's, you know, slapping people around and threatening them. But, but that kind of firm... And, you know, logical talk is what gets people, I think, further down the road. Okay, interesting. So that that works better than the, kind of the hardball tactics that maybe we only see in the movies for all I know. But, you know, the idea of terrorizing a, a confession out of a suspect. I mean, I'm, I'm with almost mm -hmm. unanimous, unanimous support, 
effective agents, interrogators will say, and I write about this a lot in the book, and I tell a lot of stories about it. You know, if you don't believe me, you should you know hear from the experts who say, uh, you know, my gun and my badge is not the thing that gets a guy to talk. It makes them not want to talk to me because they see me as the enemy. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a cop once said to me very persuasively that what I spend most of my time doing before I'm going to interview somebody or interrogate somebody is make them forget about my gun and forget about my badge and think that I'm their friend because that kind of building of rapport is proven by experience, is proven by research, and people need to get over this idea of you know fake toughness mm-hmm. and that you you know you you punch people in the face and get them to tell you things and believe that that's going to be true. Well, then I want to ask you about flippers because you dolphins. Know, you're talking about dolphins now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm talking about snitches, stool pigeons, rats. Don't <laughs> you know, use there are a million epithets. <laughs> yeah, cooperating um, witnesses. Okay, cooperating the bread witnesses. Bread and butter of criminal cases. Fair enough. You know, we talk about the uselessness of torture and coercion. Isn't that a similar situation? I mean, a deal is just kind of another form of coercion. Won't they say anything to get a deal? How can you trust that testimony? Well, some might, which is why, as I say. Uh, in in the book I wrote that that you know some of the most dangerous zones are when prosecutors and law enforcement agents decide to welcome to their side mm-hmm. someone who they previously believed had committed crimes because you do have frauds and you do have people who think they're going to pull the wool over your eyes and they've gotten away with it for a long time so you have to be incredibly careful you have to be careful to analyze everything they say you have to be careful to tell them uh, what the consequences are if you catch them in a lie you have to be prepared. To, to sell them down the river if they do lie, even if they've been helpful to your case and rip up the cooperation agreement, which, by the way, the Mueller team did with respect to Paul Manafort. Remember, Paul Manafort got convicted right, on yeah. one trial. He was facing a second trial. He decided to flip, and then he couldn't get the job done, and the Mueller team couldn't trust him. That's an example. I don't know what the exact details and circumstances were. Some of that was put forward in court. But you have to be prepared to walk away from someone who you think can give you other people if they're mm-hmm. not prepared to tell the whole truth. And the most important thing, you have to corroborate what they say. Yeah. So, you know, depending on the on the veracity and credibility and demeanor of the of the cooperating witness, with some you better have a lot more corroboration. With someone like Michael Cohen, I think you need a lot of corroboration because not only is he an unsavory person and he's known to be unsavory and unseemly in various ways, but also the crime to which he pled guilty, one of them, was lying to Congress. Yeah. <laughs> and just think of the cross examination there. I mean, that's what people have to think about. Right. Yeah. You put him on the stand in a trial against someone, the defense lawyer has a field day. So you the reason you're here, the reason you flipped, the reason you're trying to get yourself a deal, a sweetheart deal, is because you lied. Why should we believe anything you have to say? You know, even a fourth grader can do that cross-examination. Mm-hmm. But then the prosecutor has to be able to get up and say, yeah, he lied in the past. He accepted responsibility. His incentives to tell the truth now are tenfold what they were because now he knows if he lies again, he, lo- he loses any chance of, of getting any kind of leniency at all. And by the way, you, know, you should scrutinize him carefully. Uh, he is a criminal. He is convicted. He's convicted of lying specifically. But when he talked about the payments made to him by Donald Trump, he didn't just say that. You don't have to take his word for it. Here are the checks. Here are the records we got from the bank itself. And so you need to do that over and over and over again to build your case. Now, one aspect that rarely gets much attention is the times when investigators don't refer a case to the DA or when prosecutors decide not to charge Aside from the cases where there's just a general lack of evidence, what influences you when you decide to walk away from a case? It's a lot of things. I mean, you got to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Sometimes you walk away from a case because it's not worth the, the time or effort. Sometimes you walk away from a case because uh, it's it's too minor of an infraction. And there's some kinds of cases that federal prosecutors' offices didn't bring because we thought 
you know, we have limited resources. We should be going after the big kingpins, not the, mm-hmm. the petty street dealers. Sometimes you walk away from a case because even though there's a technical violation, for whatever reason, in the past 30 years, no one else who is in a similar situation has ever been prosecuted for that crime. And that comes up from time to time. And you know what? You know, there's a good argument that fairness dictates you don't treat this person differently. And obviously the most uh, you know, compelling reason to walk away from a case is that there is no case. Mm-hmm. That, you know, as I say repeatedly, people can do terrible things. People can be greedy. People can be corrupt. People can be mean. People can be obnoxious. And sometimes the law, it, you know, you, you don't get past the line. And sometimes it's something very simple, like you found evidence of criminality and you could prove it. But you know what? It's five years and a month since the crime. And the statute of limitations is five years. And there's nothing you can do about it. So there's, there's various reasons. And sometimes it can be harder to walk away from a case than to do the case. But that is part of justice, too. Yeah, you talk about the double-edged sword of speed. <laughs> How speed yeah, is so the prosecutor's yeah, best soon, friend soon, and also yeah. their worst enemy. I mean, that's true. Ways. That's yeah. true, by the way, in lots of things in life. Mm-hmm. It's probably true in, in writing a book. It's probably true in, in a medical operation. It's probably true in all sorts of things that obviously speed is important, particularly when the people who have done the bad thing are on the loose. So, you know, a bomb explodes and there's, it's not a suicide bomber. You know, I've never seen quicker mobilization of folks. So for example, after the Times Square bomber, speed is incredibly important because you have someone on the loose who maybe is going to kill other people and everybody wants to find the perpetrator. But at the same time, you can't be so fast that you overlook clues and you can't be so fast that you rush to judgment and arrest the wrong person. You know, in, remember the the Olympic bombing, yeah. uh, you know, some years ago. Obviously, there has to be a great rush, but, you know, the wrong person was arrested initially. So it's this tremendous balance like there is in lots of areas in most people's lives, although the stakes are higher when there's a bomb that has gone off, between being quick enough to do the right thing and maintain public safety, mm-hmm. but making sure you're thorough and cautious enough that you don't do it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know you have to go real quickly. Of all the types of crimes that you've prosecuted, terrorism, racketeering, public corruption, financial crimes, and all the rest, which one angers you the most? What one really gets you? So, you know, they're all serious. They're all terrible. And they all have awful consequences for communities and for people. Terrorism, obviously, is, is bone-chilling uh, in terms of the effect it can have on populations, depending on the nature of the, of the attack. Uh, gang violence causes neighborhoods to be, um, you know, torn apart, uh, and and is a is a form of terror. I think also, you know, but probably if I had to pick, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the thing that has the most resonance among citizens, I think, is public corruption, because a public corruption crime affects you really? uh, if you live in the place where the elected official uh, operates uh, and and serves, whether you voted or not whether you follow the news or not, whether you care about the legislative issues or not, because they dictate all sorts of things about your life. And so not only is it a violation of the law when an elected official, like a, like a mayor or a, an assembly speaker or someone else, commits a crime, it's also a violation of sort of the democratic social contract, that these are people who are supposed to be doing things in your interest. Right, there's and a trust and there. There's a trust there, and, and, they, and they've taken advantage of you. And in some ways... I mean, we were bringing our public corruption cases, and we did more than I think anyone else in a long, long time in New York State. Yeah. Uh, you know, people would stop me on the street. They would stop my prosecutors on the street and thank them in a way that they didn't for other cases. No kidding. Because, yeah, because it's, you're, you're sort of rescuing democracy from forces that are trying to undermine it. And 
there's something about that that gets people, you know, angry and upset. You know, there were a couple of times, as I also say candidly in the book, maybe I got a little carried away in my rhetoric about public corruption, but it is angering and it should be angering. Um, prosecutors have to be careful about how they tap into that anger, but it is absolutely appropriate for people to be really, really pissed off when they're, pro- when they're public officials uh, violate the law and more importantly, in some ways, violate their oath and line their pockets on the back of, of their votes and their money. Well, I highly recommend Preet's book, Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. I also encourage folks to subscribe to your podcast. Stay tuned with Preet. Preet Bharara, thanks for talking with thanks me. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Preet Bharara for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. I also want to remind you to subscribe to his podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen, and follow him on Twitter at at Preet Bharara. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat or text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners can even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Gas News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.